0: Hello, this is Chris Date, and you are listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 4 Baptized in Flames. this episode is baptism in the holy spirit. This will be a follow-up to episode 2 in which we discussed water baptism and whether that's something that's required for salvation. But it will also serve to address the view held by pentecostals and charismatics concerning baptism in the holy spirit. And we're going to get into all of that in just a minute. But first I wanted to say a few things. First, I want to thank Sai Ten kate for he- appearing on my show in the previous episode. I immensely enjoyed the interview. I got a lot out of it, and I've already gotten feedback from friends saying the same thing. So thank you so much, Cy, and I'm looking forward to having you on a future episode to discuss some of the things that we've talked about privately. Also, I have some exciting news to share, or at least uh, news that's exciting to me. Um, Those of you who know me know that I prefer my Zune to the iPod, most particularly the software that allows you to sync music and podcasts between the device and the computer. I hate iTunes, (laughs) but um, I love my Zune. And with that in mind, I'm excited to say that my podcast is now available in the Zune Marketplace. You can search for The Apologetics in your Zune software or online at the Zune Marketplace. And just as is the case with iTunes, you can leave me comments there. So please do consider leaving me a comment in the Zoom Marketplace. Um, That would mean a lot to me. Uh, And again, uh, negative comments are welcome also, so long as there's something that I can learn from. Also, I got my first iTunes comment, and I'd like to read that right now. Chris's podcast is very insightful, well thought out, and smart. Most importantly, it really makes you think. You can tell a lot of effort has been put into his research. It's obvious that he firmly stands behind what he is trying to convey to the rest of us who may have been led away from the truth of the gospel. Thanks for putting me straight, Chris. Keep up the good work. Well, you're welcome, and uh, you know, I must confess to my listeners that this is a family member whom I deeply care about, and um, you know, as such, there might be a little bit of bias there. But still, I really appreciate the comment, and I hope that um, the rest of you listeners will also consider leaving me comments in the iTunes store. Finally, I explained in the previous episode that Glenn Peoples of Theme Music New Zealand was kind enough to create theme music for my show. I want to thank Glenn so much for doing that for me. Um, And also, uh, this has allowed me to create a promo for my show, which I'm hoping that my podcaster friends will consider playing in their shows. And since I don't have any promos for other shows to play in this episode, although I hope to in the next one, I'm going to play my promo so you can see what it sounds like, and maybe that'll convince you to include it in one of your shows. So here it is. Hi, this is Chris Date, host of the Theapologetics Podcast. Theology and apologetics aren't just for pastors, philosophers, and PhDs. They're for the average Joes in the pews like me, too. Join me as I discuss a wide variety of theological issues and show how a proper biblical worldview can help defend the historic Christian faith from its critics. Search for Theapologetics at the iTunes Store, the Zune Marketplace, or visit us online at theapologetics.podbean.com. That's theoapologetics.podbean.com know what you believe, and why you believe it, and not something else. I'm pretty pleased with how this promo turned out, and I'm looking forward to hearing it in some of the shows that I listen to, which might include some of yours. So I would really appreciate it if you would consider playing a promo for my show and yours, assuming that you like my show and agree with its content. And I'd be happy to reciprocate. If you have a resource, whether that's a podcast or a blog or anything else, please do let me know if you'd like to hear your promo in my show. Um... As long as I am comfortable with the content of your resource, I will happily include it in an upcoming episode. So contact me at theopologetics at hotmail.com and I'll let you know what I think. So with all that having been said, let's move into the topic of today's episode. After I published episode two, I continued my debate with my friend about the necessity of water baptism at his blog. And there, as well as in my podcast episode, I pointed him to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 who received the Holy Spirit before being baptized in water. I claimed, based on that, that they were saved before being baptized, and, you know, I thought that that was proof against his view. He responded, though, that no, they weren't actually saved until they were baptized. They had merely received the Holy Spirit. So I pointed him to passages such as Second Corinthians chapter five, Second Corinthians chapter one, Romans chapter eight, and Ephesians chapter one, which show that the Holy Spirit is a promise that we have in fact been saved. He is a pledge of resurrection. He's a promise of redemption. He seals us in Christ, and he testifies within us that we are children of God. It seemed clear then that these Gentiles were in fact saved. Prior to water baptism, and Peter, in the next chapter in chapter eleven, connects their experience with baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, I was surprised when he responded that the Gentiles did experience the baptism in the Holy Spirit, but that that was different from the saving indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He claimed that baptism in the Holy Spirit is a an, a special empowering you know a, a, that manifests itself in spiritual gifts like tongues and that the uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit was given to the apostles and to some uh, some of the others in the early generation of believers, but that this died out with them. This, it turns out, is similar to a view held by Pentecostals and Charismatics. These groups also claim that baptism in the Holy Spirit is different from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But unlike my friend, they claim that it's for believers today as well. They teach that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit upon saving belief, but that sometime after that we have the ability or the option to undergo a special second work of the Holy Spirit that they call Baptism in the Holy Spirit, which empowers us in a special way with gifts like tongues. Although my friend and these groups disagree about whether or not Baptism in the Holy Spirit is for us today, they do agree about the nature of Baptism in the Holy Spirit, and so I'm going to address them together. Whereas they view baptism in the Holy Spirit as different from the saving and dwelling of the Holy Spirit, I believe that the biblical position is that they're, in fact, one and the same. Baptism in the Holy Spirit did not disappear with the New Testament church, nor is it something that's different from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Rather, every true believer has been baptized in the Holy Spirit, who seals us in Christ and testifies that we are children of God, and manifests himself through spiritual gifts. Now, before we look at scripture, uh, we'll take a brief look at the early church fathers. In episode two, I demonstrated that the earliest church fathers, like Polycarp Ignatius of Antioch and Clement of Rome, make little to no mention of baptism whatsoever. And Justin Martyr and the author of the Epistle of Barnabas speak, apparently, of a spiritual washing away of sins rather than the physical water of baptism. Now, of course, they're not the authority. Uh, What they said, or in this case didn't say, must be tested in light of the authoritative word of God. However, some, including a teacher whose sermon my friend asked me to listen to, claim that church history is united for nearly 2,000 years, that water baptism is a prerequisite for salvation. What we see, however, is that while this view developed over the uh, few hundred years following Christ, the 1st and 2nd century teachers appear not, not to share this view. But what do they say about baptism in the Holy Spirit? Clement of Rome, writing to the Corinthians in the first century, wrote of them that a profound and abundant peace was given to you all, and you had an insatiable desire for doing good, while a full outpouring of the Holy Spirit was upon you all. Full of of holy designs you did with true earnestness of mind and a godly confidence, stretch forth your hands to God Almighty, beseeching him to be merciful unto you, if you had been guilty of any involuntary transgression." Day and night you were anxious for the whole brotherhood, that the number of God's elect might be saved with mercy and a good conscience. He goes on later in this letter to write, Why are there strifes and tumults and divisions and schisms and wars among you? Have we not all one God and one Christ? Is there not one Spirit of grace poured out upon us? And have we not one calling in Christ? Why do we divide and tear in pieces the members of Christ and raise up strife against our own body and have reached such a height of madness as to forget that we are members of one another? Now we're going to look at the scriptures a little bit later, but what I want to point out here is that Clement of Rome connects a full outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the pouring out of the Spirit of Grace, which he says was upon all of us, he connects that outpouring with being members of one body, and we're going to see that in the scriptures a little bit later. And he connects it with being uh, anxious for the whole brotherhood that the number of gods elect might be saved with mercy and a good conscience. So keep these in mind, full outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon us all, Uh, number of gods elect might be saved with a good conscience, members of one body, one calling in Christ. Keep this in mind later. The author of the Epistle of Barnabas, which I think is a second century work, writes, Seeing that the divine fruits of righteousness abound among you, I rejoice exceedingly and above measure in your happy and honored spirits, because you have with such effect received the engraved spiritual gift. Wherefore also I inwardly rejoice the more, hoping to be saved, because I truly perceive in you the spirit poured forth from the rich Lord of love. What the author is here saying is that these divine fruits of righteousness that abound among the people he's writing to are the effect of, or the evidence of, the Holy Spirit being poured forth upon them. Two things bear keeping in mind here. First, there's no connection made between the pouring forth of the Holy Spirit and uh, tongues or anything like that, and furthermore, there's no indication that this is some sort of special empowering that happens to some saved Christians and not others. Second of all, we see that this work written in the second century suggests that this pouring forth of the Holy Spirit is not something that ceased with the dying of the first apostles. Now, you might ask yourself at this point what relevance these words have to baptism in the Holy Spirit, since neither author mentions it uh, explicitly. But keep in mind that they both use the phrase, pouring out or pouring forth of his Spirit, and we'll we'll make this connection clearer when we get into the biblical text, but suffice it to say for now that in Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, the apostles recognize what happens to them as the pouring forth of the Holy Spirit. And from the previous chapter as well as in uh, later chapters in Acts, we see that this is in fact baptism in the Holy Spirit. These early church fathers then viewed baptism in the Holy Spirit not as something that died out with the earliest generation of believers, uh, not as a special empowering above and beyond the saving and dwelling of the Holy Spirit, but rather the saving and dwelling of the Holy Spirit that we all experience that manifests itself in righteousness and unity and in other spiritual gifts. Now again, this doesn't mean that my friend is wrong when he believes that baptism in the Holy Spirit died out with the early generation of believers, nor does it prove uh, pentecostals and charismatics and my friend wrong when they view baptism in the holy spirit as something separate from uh, above and beyond the saving and dwelling of the holy spirit for that we'll turn to scripture in a moment but i want to illustrate at this point just that the early church history cannot be pointed to in support of this view of baptism in the holy spirit that sees it as something different from the saving and dwelling of the holy spirit the question that we need to ask then is whose view does scripture support Does it support the teaching of these early church fathers in the first and second centuries who viewed baptism in the Holy Spirit as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Or does it support this view that they are two different things? Let me start by giving what I think is the biblical case made by proponents of this view. Their case begins by demonstrating that the apostles had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit before Pentecost in john chapter twenty verse twenty two after his resurrection jesus breathed on them and said to them receive the holy spirit similarly in matthew ten nineteen to twenty jesus tells his disciples when they hand you over do not worry about how or what you are to say for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say for it is not you who speak but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you so the disciples appear to have had the holy spirit inside them already and yet in acts chapter one verses four and five jesus says to them wait for what the father had promised for you will be baptized with the holy spirit not many days from now this hearkens to matthew three eleven where john says i baptize you with water for repentance but he will baptize you with the holy spirit and fire this baptism occurs at pentecost in acts chapter two verses two to four where suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as a Spirit was given them utterance. That this was, in fact, the baptism in the Holy Spirit that was promised them is clear from Acts chapter 11. In verses 15 through 17, Peter speaks of what happened to the God-fearers, or Gentile converts to Judaism, in the previous chapter where the Holy Spirit fell upon them and they spoke in tongues. Uh, And he connects us with the same gift Peter and the other apostles were given and says that this was them being baptized in the Holy Spirit. So Jesus' disciples had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit before Pentecost, but at Pentecost were given what they were promised, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus appeared to the Apostle Paul when he was still Saul and blinded him for three days. Such a miraculous appearance and demonstration of power certainly produced in Saul saving belief in Christ, but it wasn't until three days later that Ananias lays uh, his hands on Saul, telling him to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The case continues by demonstrating that this was also the experience of the other believers as well. In Acts chapter 8, verses 12 to 17, the Sumerians received the word of God and believed Philip and were baptized. Yet Peter and John came and prayed that they would receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. It's not until Peter and John uh, lay hands upon the Samaritans that they receive the Holy Spirit. So they, like the apostles, believed and were saved and only later experienced the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Similarly, in Acts chapter 19, Paul asks some Ephesians if they received the Holy Spirit when they believed uh, and, were, and were baptized in John's baptism. They respond that no, they hadn't, and so Paul baptizes them in Jesus' name and lays hands on them, and it's at that point that the Holy Spirit comes on them. And they begin speaking with tongues and prophesying so the sumerians and the ephesian gentiles clearly believed and were saved but at some point thereafter are gifted with baptism in the holy spirit which as was the case also with the apostles and the god-fearers manifested itself in the speaking of tongues this is the case for viewing baptism in the holy spirit as being different from the saving and dwelling of the holy spirit uh, as best i can give it anyway If you're listening and believe I've left anything out, please contact me, and I'll follow up in a future episode. As I explained in episode 2, I don't want to present this view poorly and then refute a poor representation of the position. As it stands, though, these are the passages I've seen used to defend this view, and it is my contention that while on the surface these might seem to support the view shared by my friend, Pentecostals and Charismatics, a closer look at these texts and others reveals that this is not the case. And I want to begin by taking a closer look at Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, in which, as we've seen, the apostles being filled with the Holy Spirit is the baptism in the Holy Spirit they had been promised. Seeing the apostles speak in various tongues, the Jews ask, What does this mean? Peter responds, beginning in verse 16, saying, This is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind, even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. As an aside, remember when I quoted Clement of Rome in the epistle of Barnabas, in which the author spoke of the pouring forth of God's Spirit? Well, we see here, then, that they had the baptism of the Holy Spirit in mind. Since Peter is saying that Joel's prophecy, in which the pouring forth of God's Spirit, is promised... In fact, foretold the baptism in the Holy Spirit they had just experienced. Now, this prophecy was originally made in a time when the gifts of the Holy Spirit were restricted only to certain individuals like Moses, uh, the judges and the prophets. And as one example of this, we can look at Numbers chapter 11. In verses 16 to 17, God says to Moses, Gather for me 70 men from the elders of Israel, then I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take of the Spirit who is upon you and will put him upon them. In verse 25, he took of the spirit who was upon moses and placed him upon the 70 elders and when the spirit rested upon them they prophesied in verse 28 joshua complains that two of those elders continued prophesying and moses responds in verse 29 saying would that all the lord's people were prophets and that the lord would put his spirit on all of them so joel's prophecy of a future baptism in the holy spirit which began at pentecost foretold of a time in which Unlike when it was originally written, the Holy Spirit and the manifestation of gifts would be given to all God's people, not just certain elders and leaders within God's community. As Joel records God as saying, I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my Spirit. Hence, in Acts chapter 2, 38-39, Peter says to all the Jews in attendance, You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Furthermore, what we see in Acts chapter 8, 14-17 is a broadening of the baptism in the Holy Spirit from all Jewish believers in Christ to Sumerian believers in Christ as well. And then in Acts chapter 10, 44 to 47, we see a further broadening of the baptism in the Holy Spirit from all Jewish and Samaritan believers in Christ to all Gentile converts to Judaism as well. And then in Acts chapter 19, 1 to 7, we see a still further broadening of the baptism in the Holy Spirit from all Jewish, Samaritan and God-fearing Gentile believers in Christ to all Gentiles not already converted to Judaism as well. So what we see in the account of Acts is this prophecy of Joel coming to full fruition. The outpouring of God's Spirit unto manifestation of gifts, once limited only to special leaders within the Israelite community, is increasingly given to all believers in Christ, all God's people. I mentioned earlier a sermon that my friend had asked me to listen to, and in it the speaker claimed that water baptism was the sign that Gentiles were welcomed into the community of God through Christ, but that's not really the case, as we've seen. It is the baptism in the Holy Spirit that proved as this sign. As Peter said in Acts 10.47, Surely, no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can He? And again in Acts chapter 11, verse 17, "If God gave to them the same gift as He gave to us, also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? So the, the point that I'm making here is that baptism in the Holy Spirit is not something experienced by only some within the Christian community. For if it were, there would be no real difference between how the Spirit operated in the Old Covenant community and how he operates in the New Covenant one. Rather, baptism in the Holy Spirit is for all of God's people through Christ, and how joyous Moses would be if he were alive today to see, as that for which he longed, the Lord put his Spirit upon all the Lord's people. This alone, in my opinion, proves the case that I'm trying to make, but there's further biblical evidence that we can look at. There are two things common to most of these examples of baptism in the Holy Spirit. First, the phrase, receive the Holy Spirit, is present in each of them, in which the the word receive is the Greek lambano. Second, in most of these cases, baptism in the Holy Spirit is accompanied by the manifestation of spiritual gifts, specifically in these cases, tongues and prophecy. Let's look at that latter commonality first. In 1 Corinthians 12, spiritual gifts, including, but not limited to, tongues and prophecy, are said to be the manifestation of the Spirit. But to whom does Paul say such gifts are given? He says in verse 7, To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, he says in verse 12, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. You'll recall that when I quoted Clement in the Epistle of Barnabas earlier, that the authors connected the pouring forth of God's Spirit with being all part of the same body of Christ. They weren't making that up. It's the plain teaching of this passage in God's Word. The spiritual gifts, which are the manifestation of the baptism in the Holy Spirit, are manifested to each one or by each one of those who are in Christ's body. In fact, what does verse 13 say? For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Since the accounts in Acts speak of baptism in the Holy Spirit, accompanied by the manifestation of spiritual gifts, it seems obvious, to me anyway, that 1 Corinthians 12, which speaks of the manifestation of spiritual gifts, and which says, for by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, it's likewise speaking of baptism in the Holy Spirit. One thing worth noting, though, is that Paul says each member of Christ's body receives this baptism and its gifts, but that, but that not everybody gets the same gifts he says in verses four to six there are varieties of gifts varieties of ministries varieties of effects but the same god who works all things in all persons to one he says in verse eight is given the word of wisdom through the spirit and to another the word of knowledge according to the same spirit To another, faith by the same Spirit, and to another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another, the effecting of miracles, and to another, prophecy, and to another, the distinguishing of spirits, and to another, the various uh, kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. This is important because when faced with this clear biblical teaching, that the baptism in the Holy Spirit is something every believer in Christ experiences, one might ask well, why didn't I speak in tongues like those in Acts well the simple answer based on these Paul's words is that the Spirit chose to give the gift of tongues to those believers but different gifts to you now verse 13 which says by one spirit we were all baptized into one body goes on to say we were all made to drink of one spirit now look what Jesus said in John chapter 7 37 to 39 if anyone is thirsty Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And John records that this Jesus spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Coming to Jesus and drinking is what those who believe in him do, and refers to the receiving of the Holy Spirit. And this leads us into the first commonality I mentioned between the accounts in Acts. Uh, Each of them use or speak of receiving the Holy Spirit. So let's look then at the passages I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, which speak of what the Holy Spirit's indwelling means for the believer. Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. But look what it says in the verse immediately before it. You have received a spirit of adoption as sons. And here the word receive is the same Greek word we looked at before. In verses 9 through 11, Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside us. So receiving the Holy Spirit, which in the accounts in Acts is baptism in the Holy Spirit, is here in Romans said to be the saving and dwelling of the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 5, 4 to 5, Paul says, God gave to us the Spirit as a pledge that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. That word gave is the Greek didomi, which appears also in Matthew chapter 7, 7 to 8, in which Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you, and everyone who asks receives. This word received, the Greek lumbano, and this word give, the Greek didymi, are connected with one another. So, when Paul says God gave to us the Spirit as a pledge, that corresponds to us receiving the Holy Spirit. Now look at Second Corinthians chapter one verses twenty one to twenty two, where Paul writes He who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us in God, who also sorry, he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Again, gave us the Spirit corresponds to receiving the Holy Spirit, and we're told here that He is a promise we've been sealed in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14 says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, have uh, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. So yet again, given the Holy Spirit of promise corresponds to receiving the Holy Spirit and says it is a pledge of our inheritance. You see, Scripture knows nothing of a difference between the indwelling of the Holy Spirit experienced by every saved believer and baptism in the Holy Spirit under the manifestation of spiritual gifts. The Bible teaches very clearly that these are one and the same. Every genuine believer in Christ has received the baptism in the Holy Spirit and manifests various spiritual gifts. The Bible speaks clearly and loudly about this, but what are we to make of the passages brought up in the positive case for viewing baptism in the Holy Spirit as something different? Well, before we look at those, I want to follow up briefly to episode 2. You see, what the Bible says about uh, baptism in the Holy Spirit means that when we find the word baptism in the epistles, we cannot simply assume that water baptism is what's in view. When uh, in 1 Peter 3.21, the author says, baptism now saves you, We cannot simply assume that physical water baptism is what's in view. The verse goes on to say that the baptism spoken of is not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, remember that this was the connection made by Clement of Rome between the pouring forth of God's spirit and being saved with mercy and a good conscience. Now, one might object, saying that Peter says the water of Noah's flood symbolized the baptism he's speaking of. But as as we've already seen, Jesus uses living water as a symbol for receiving the Holy Spirit, so there's no reason to think Peter has water baptism in view. Instead, the more biblically consistent understanding is that he has baptism in the Holy Spirit in view, the receiving of the Holy Spirit, which saves us. Romans chapter 6, 3-4 says, All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death, and we have been buried with him through baptism into death. There's no justification for assuming that water baptism is in view here, but since baptism in the Holy Spirit is the saving and dwelling of the Holy Spirit, as we've seen, it makes sense to understand that here, especially given that we have not literally been buried with Christ. Galatians chapter 3 verse 27 says, All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Again, baptism in the Holy Spirit is the saving and dwelling of the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ, so it seems likely that what's in view here, given also the fact that we haven't literally clothed ourselves with Christ, uh, and since there's no justification for assuming water baptism. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 11-12, to 12, it says that we were buried with him in baptism. And again, we have no justification for assuming water baptism is in view here, but given that the verse immediately before this one speaks of a spiritual circumcision symbolized by physical circumcision, it seems obvious that the baptism in view here is a spiritual one symbolized by physical water baptism. Now, were the apostles indwelt by the Holy Spirit before Pentecost? Uh, we looked at John 20:22 20, earlier, where Jesus breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Yeah, okay, so he breathed on them and does it say that they did in fact receive the holy spirit no it doesn't but this does seem to be the same account told slightly differently by luke in chapter 24 of his gospel in verse 49 jesus says i am sending forth the promise of my father upon you but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high and this seems to correspond to acts 1 4 where he commanded them not to leave jerusalem but to wait for what the father had promised so no In John 20, 22, the apostles do not receive the Holy Spirit. They are merely promised him, and they do not receive it until Pentecost. Similarly, in Matthew 10, verses 19 and 20, when Jesus says, It is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you, nothing in the text says that they had the Spirit inside them at that time. Jesus speaks of things that will happen to them in the future when they will experience persecution, as we see throughout the book of Acts. As for the Sumerians in Acts 8... We're told they received the word of God and believed Philip preaching the good news, but as we've seen, the baptism in the Holy Spirit was given incrementally to an increasingly wider body of believers, as a sign that they were welcome into God's community through faith in Christ. We can't know for certain that before being baptized in water, the Sumerians trusted in Christ as the propitiation for their sins, with the level of sincerity spoken of as that which saves. However, even if they did, God had not yet indicated through baptism in the Holy Spirit that non-Jews were able to be saved through faith in Christ, until Peter and John were present to witness it. When they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, that was when they became saved. As for Saul in Acts 9, there is no evidence that he trusted in Christ as the atonement for his sins before he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Gentile god fears in Acts 10 received the baptism in the Holy Spirit immediately following Peter's having said, Through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So they were baptized in the Holy Spirit and thus, as we've seen, saved when they first genuinely believed. And as for the Ephesian Gentiles in Acts 19, they had been baptized into John's baptism, but they hadn't even heard of a Holy Spirit. So whatever they had been taught, they were not told the whole story. We can't really know if they truly trusted in Christ as the atonement for their sins. In fact, Paul tells them that John told the people to believe in Jesus. This suggests they didn't, in fact, have saving faith in Christ. Hearing this, they accept water baptism, and, upon having, la- uh, having hands laid on them, they receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit. What was true in Acts 8 is true here as well. God poured out the Holy Spirit upon them to further broaden the Christian community as a sign that Gentiles not previously converted to Judaism were welcome. And given the connection we've seen between saving faith in Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and baptism in the Holy Spirit, we can conclude that they placed this kind of saving faith in Christ at the moment that they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. You see, there is no evidence that baptism in the Holy Spirit is different from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which we are given upon exercising saving faith in Jesus Christ, whose death is the only atonement for our sins. But there is an enormous wealth of biblical evidence that the two are one and the same. So if somebody tells you that it is important that you be baptized in water, they're right. Christ commanded his apostles to baptize believers in water, and a continuous, ongoing refusal to be baptized in water is disobedience to the risen Christ in whom we claim to trust. But, if this same person tells you that you aren't saved, that you aren't born again through faith in Christ until you were baptized in water, Or, if somebody tells you that you might be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but encourages you to be further baptized in the Holy Spirit unto the speaking of tongues, you can tell them that, like the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, you were baptized in the Holy Spirit when you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who died and rose again for the forgiveness of your sins, and ascended to the Father to send to the church the Holy Spirit who in every single believer in the body of Christ manifests himself through a variety of spiritual gifts which he distributes individually as he sees fit for the building up of his body. Furthermore, you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, through baptism in the Holy Spirit are indwelt by him, and he has given you gifts which he desires that you use to his glory and to the edification of the church. There are a variety of such gifts, and while yours might not be the miraculous ones like tongues and healing, You might have the gift of wisdom, or the gift of knowledge, or the gift of faith, or the gift of teaching, or one of a host of other gifts described in Scripture. I encourage you to ask the leadership of your local congregation if they can help you identify your gifts, and how you can use these gifts given you through baptism in the Holy Spirit that you experienced when He indwelt you upon saving faith in Christ to serve Him and His body. Contact me directly if you'd like, and I'd be happy to point you to resources that might help you to do so. In the meantime, thanks so much for listening, and I hope that you'll join me for the next episode of the The Apologetics Podcast. Until then, God bless you.